I am really not giving an exam, but if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. The story is told that uh, at the end of a three-year-long course in Spanish, the teacher asked the students who, would, who were about to be immersed in Spanish culture in Mexico for the summer, she asked this question, what is the first thing you will ask when you get there? After much thought, one student replied, hablo usted inglés? Do you speak English? Okay, just take that one, put it in your back pocket for later. Very good. How many of you have ever had Spanish course that lasted maybe a couple of years? Hands? Spanish course that lasted a couple of years? Come on, I know a number of you have. All right, anyway. I want to give you a test right now, and it's not found on that piece of paper I just passed out. It's actually two questions. And here's the nature of tests. It tries to help you understand what you have been studying, and it tends to try to put it in a life setting. So that's what we're going to do. Two-question test. Are you ready? This first one is based on the principle of subtraction. So help me out here. What is 6 minus 3 minus 2 minus 1? Did you get that? 6 minus 3 minus 2 minus 1. What is the product? What's it is zero. That's right. The sum is zero. Let me put this in a life setting. Mary has six apples. One day, Billy takes three apples. The next day, he takes two more of those apples. And then the next day, he takes one apple. How many apples does Mary have left? Zero. That's right. Very good. You guys are good at this. Okay, now let's do a subtraction. Excuse me, an addition problem. Uh, what is three plus two plus one? Six, there we go. Let me put this in a life setting. So Billy, one day, acquires three apples. The next day, he acquires two apples. And the next day, he acquires one apples. One apple. How many apples does he give Mary? He gives her zero. That's right, you're on top of things. Because we just learned in the last question that Billy is a taker and not a giver. And consequently, he eats all his apples. So you're getting this, right? Sometimes tests ask the hard questions. How many of you have ever gone through a class, and let's say midterm comes, and you, you, you say to yourself, I know this stuff, I got it. And you walk into the test, and when you walk out, you realize you had no clue what that course was about. And you feel like you failed anybody. You, you thought you knew it. And after the test, you realize just how much you really didn't. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that happens. That absolutely happens. And the truth, though, is that the purpose of a, an exam, like a midterm, would be to make sure that you understand the principles that have been taught in that class and then place it in a life setting just to make sure that you understand them. So today, we are going to be looking at Paul's midterm exam review, if you will. And it's found in, excuse me, Romans 14, excuse me, Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. 
And we're going to discover here eight principles he has already covered in Romans that thus far, and, and Romans thus far, and he places them in a life setting. And actually, the life setting is his own life. But this is kind of like a midterm exam review. Eight principles. And it's this section here is kind of a summary of those principles, and they characterize the truth of those who are under law and under sin, trying to find the answer, which, church, we know to be who? Jesus Christ. That's right. Now, as we go through this, we're going to start right now, Romans 7, verse 14, and follow me as I'm reading from the NIV. I'm just going to read the first verse and make some comments. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. The first thing that we are going to encounter here is that Paul uses the present tense. Now, I don't want that to throw you. The present tense does not automatically mean that Paul is writing this in the first person, in the present. Specifically here, that would be 57 AD. Paul is a mature believer. He is an apostle with signs and wonders following. He has probably one of the closest relationships with Jesus Christ. And I think we're going to make a mistake if we get sidetracked by the use of the present tense and say that this section is about Paul as he is writing the book of Romans. I do not believe it is. And as we go through this, I think you're going to see that. But this is basically Paul in his personal struggle before he came to Christ as one who was a Jew under the law and one who was a sinner under sin and finding he is completely unable to please God. And there is such turmoil and conflict in his heart. And so we immediately encounter the present tense, and I don't want that to throw you. And as you'll see here in your notes, many people call this the dramatic or the emphatic present tense. Now, we encounter this in, in common Greek. We don't use it too much in English, though we do. For example, in John 20, this is about the resurrection. Mary Magdalene just discovers that the tomb of Jesus is empty, and she runs and she tells Peter and John, and in your Bible, it probably says, and Peter and John ran to the tomb. And it puts it in the past tense, but if you were to look at the actual Greek, the Greek, for some reason, puts it in the present tense. Peter and John run to the tomb. But the translators realize that this is a different use of the present tense, it's what they call the dramatic or the emphatic present tense. And so they know that John puts it in the present tense because he wants his readers to see in their minds and feel the action as, as Peter and John come to this tomb and the tomb is empty. And they are wondering, what? What is going on here? And the turmoil that begins. So we see that played out in a story. Now, if you stay in Romans 7, but turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to see that Paul uses the present tense again, but it's not in story form. It's actually, <coughs> excuse me, to 
to play out a principle in which he is the example of this principle. And in chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse, verses 12 through 14, Paul speaks in the past tense, much by the way as he did in Romans 7, 7 through 13. And we, I read only little bits and pieces of that. You can go back and look at it. And it's his testimony as far as when he came and encountered the law and how the law truly revealed sin in his heart. And he realized just how dead he was in trying to pursue the law because he couldn't. He could not live up to God's standards. And it actually says the, says the law slew him and, and he was put to death. And so that is in the past tense, and then he shifts to the present tense, much as he does. Now, follow with me here, verse 15. He does that here. Past tense in verses 12 through 14. Here it says, here is a trustworthy saying that is a principle you can bank on. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Listen to this, church. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And I want you to underline that. I am the worst. Well, here's my question. Paul's writing to Timothy. It's about 63 to 65 AD. He has followed Christ for about 30 years. He was a mature believer, a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Is he the worst sinner in the entire world? Well, well of course he is not. Then why is he doing this? Is he just trying to be humble? Well, if he is, then we call this false humility, and, and that's not worth a whole lot to God. I'm going to encourage you, don't be falsely humble, okay? Paul is not trying to be falsely humble here. He is taking a truth from his past that he was the worst sinner. He persecuted the truth. He knew the Old Testament. He knew Isaiah 53. And yet he failed to see Jesus in light of that, and he failed to see that Jesus truly was the Savior of the world, and so he persecuted Christians and thereby persecuted Jesus. And so he sees himself as this example of the worst sinner, and yet, by God's mercy, God poured out his grace upon him and saved him. See, this is the trustworthy. Here's the principle. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so Paul as, uses as an example himself, and he says it this way, I am the worst of sinners saved by God's grace. Here is that truth. But he puts it in the present tense. Now, he has done this for us already in the book of Romans. If you were to turn to chapter 3, you don't have to. But in Romans 3, he describes those who are, as he says, under sin. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. We're going to come back to that phrase, under sin. And he says, <laughs> in verse 10, he's quoting numerous Old Testament passages, and he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Now, is Paul trying to include himself in that in the present? Well, of course not, because he knows God. He understands God. He does good. He's using the present tense to emphasize this principle. Even though there were sinners in the past, there will be sinners in the future, all of which are lost and under sin and in need of rescuing, 
But he takes this principle and he puts it in the first person. He puts it in the present tense. The emphatic present tense. So as I'm going to read through now Romans 7, and I just want you to not get tripped up by the fact that he's using the present tense. It's a common way of using the present tense in Greek. Uh, it's just not quite so common in our English language. So here we go, Romans 7, <clears throat> starting again with verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, which was his point, by the way, in the previous verses. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We would put it this way, Paul is a sin addict. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Can you see the control that sin has in his life? Now, before I go any further, let me say this. Though I believe that this passage specifically is referring to Paul as an unbeliever, I'm completely aware that every single Christian, myself included, and Paul, struggles or struggled with sin. It's just that this passage does not refer to that struggle. Galatians 5, for example, speaks to this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. It's just that Paul, as we read through this, Paul uses very specific words. Paul, Paul's a detail kind of guy, if you haven't picked that up. He's a detail kind of guy. When he chooses a word or a phrase, he stands by it. He was very particular why he chooses that word, why he chooses that phrase, and it's very specific. He does not make a mistake, especially in the fact that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so as he goes through this, let's realize he is using very specific principles and, and words and phrases that he has already gone over to show us that this is describing an unbeliever. But I do not in any way want to downplay the struggle that as Christians we can have. But remember, we are talking about truth and we are talking about our reality and seeking to align our reality with that truth. And we find that throughout the book of Romans and actually much of Paul's preaching. Well, let me continue on here. Verse 21, for I find this law at work. And by the way, the word law is used in this passage and other passages in several different ways. Sometimes the law means the entire Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 22, I believe it is, 24, in which he, he quotes from Isaiah and he says, the law says. Sometimes the law means the Mosaic law or just the, five, the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the word law refers to uh, specific aspects of the commandments in the New Testament. Here, it just simply means principle, like the law of gravity. The law of gravity is not the Mosaic law. But let me trust you, if you break that law, you will quickly discover how important it is. The law of gravity is a principle or a law. 
And so he's using the term law here in, in this passage in different ways. The law of God, Mosaic law, and this a law meaning a principle. We're going to encounter both of those many times. For I find this law at work, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war. Feel that conflict, church. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature or the flesh, a slave to the law of sin. Well, let's dig into these eight principles if we can. Now, in the order here, we're, it shows that we're going to treat the word sold first. I'm going to treat, I'm going to speak to number two first. This concept of being under law. Paul says that he is under law. You know, excuse me, let me, let me back up for just a moment here. I, I realize I have skipped this word here, spiritual. Uh, in your Bibles, uh, this word, in many of your words, it's unspiritual. Paul is declaring, I am unspiritual. This is a word that he uses, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, and he is rebuking the Corinthians. The Corinthians have become divided. They're wrestling with tremendous insecurities. When someone wrestles with insecurity, they feel devalued, and so they want to they add value to themselves. So they say, the Corinthians were saying, well, I am of Paul. And someone said, oh, yeah, well, I am of Cephas, Simon Peter. And others would say, I got you all beat. I am of Christ. And, and Paul is rebuking them. And in essence, he's saying, really? Have you stooped to such uh, low standards? Jesus Christ is everything. And in essence, Paul is saying, I am of Christ. Cephas is of Christ. Apollos is of Christ. All of these great men, James, all of these great men, they're of Christ and of no one else. You are not of me, even though I may have been a spiritual father to you. You're not of me. You are of Christ. So quit this bickering among you, will, will you? Moms, dads, have you ever had your, your children bickering, especially like when you're on a road trip? back and forth, back and forth, and you just, you want to pull over and just, okay, let, let, me, let, me, let me use the rod of correction and get this thing straightened out here. And, and just bickering, and, and that's what Paul, he's frustrated, and he's saying, you know what, You're, you should be spiritual, and he, which is the same word here in, in Romans seven fourteen, but you're not. You act worldly, which again, Paul is saying here, I am worldly. You're acting worldly. Yeah, I want to speak to you as if you're spiritual, but you're not. You're worldly. You act like the world. So I'm going to have to speak to you as if you're, you're, you're acting like the world, and you're really just a, an infant in Christ. So here's my question. Is, is Paul really confessing that he is worldly, is, that he's an infant in Christ, I would have to say, no, he's not. He's not even trying to make us think that uh, this is just me way back in the day. No, this is Paul referring to himself 
using these eight principles that he's already taught us that described his captivity. And as we move on to these eight principles now, under sin. And we, we learned what under sin meant. Uh, we've come across this phrase under sin, under law, many times. And Paul is saying that he is one who sold under sin. The literal phrase is sold under sin. Now, those who are sold under sin have sin as their master. Sin has power authority, and control over that person who is under sin. Sin is a tyrannical master. There is this compulsion within this person to sin. I mean, how many of us, before we came to Christ, there was, we were, yes, sin addicts, as I use that phrase. There was just this compulsion to sin. We wanted to do good. I know for me, I grew up in a Christian home. I knew right from wrong, at least for the most part, but I was constantly tested. But you know what? I constantly failed. And I was under sin. I was held captive by sin. And, and I felt like a prisoner, and I wanted to be good, church. I really did. Trust me, my dad's belt was huge, and when that thing landed on my backside, I wanted to do anything and everything possible to avoid that. But it was like every day I got it. I could not seem to avoid it because I was a sin addict. I was under sin. And then he uses this term, sold under sin. Now, when we go to market, and we buy and sell things, that's a transfer of goods. But what is it called when you do that with a person? Paul's a person. And he's now confessing he's sold. We call that yeah, being a slave. That's the slavery market. So that's why the NIV actually inserts those words. It says sold as a slave. And that's the way we need to understand this. Paul is confessing that as one who is outside of Christ, outside of the hope, the power, and the control of Christ, under sin, he was sold. He was sold. Sin, if you will, had bought him. Sin owned him. Sin controlled him. But I want to tell you, church, here is the, the midterm exam review principle when Christ redeems you, are you still under sin? Are you still the slave? Are you still owned by the slave sin? Or are you owned by Jesus Christ himself? Now, if we were to look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24, he uses this concept of redemption. And he in verse 23, you're familiar, all of sin fallen short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is a purchase market term. Jesus Christ bought us. He, he did this with his blood. We are no longer owned by sin or the devil or anything else out there. We have now been bought and owned by the master of this universe who reached down into this world to save sinners that Paul confesses he is the worst. This, though, is his confession. 
as one outside of the redemptive program of God. Sold. I am sold under sin. Christians, I realize that there are times in which we feel such a pull of the flesh and of sin. But please get this. Paul is saying you are not sold and you are certainly not sold under sin. This is a truth. And he has established that truth. And this is more like than an exam review. Guys, do you really get this? You see, this is the way I was. I was carnal. I was worldly. And I was sold under sin. I was in bondage. I was in slavery to sin. Christians, I understand the struggle. But please understand this truth that we are now called to align ourselves with. This truth is, You are not a slave of sin. You have been bought and thereby owned by the master of heaven, Jesus Christ. This is our hope. Never take your eyes off of that. And as we go through this, he then confesses, I cannot carry it out. The good I want to do, I can't carry it out. Now look at that in verse 18. It's literally translated this way. The desire to do good is present in me. The desire, underline that word, the desire to do good is, is within me, but the ability, the will, the, the doing of that good is not present in me. Now, isn't this what Romans 3, those who are under sin, isn't that what Paul has just told us? Just a few chapters earlier. It doesn't say concerning those who are in bondage to sin and outside of the hope and power and control of Christ that they can't want to do good. It doesn't say they don't desire to do good. It doesn't say that they don't even that they can't even delight in the law. It doesn't say that at all. The bondage of their will is found in this that though they may want to do good, they can't. The ability to do good is not even in them. Do you remember Isaiah 64, 6? All of our righteousness, our best church, our best. Before we came to Christ, we we could say, God, look at this good thing I did. And and Isaiah says, all our righteousness were as filthy rags. Our best. And we discovered that it's because this thing called sin that is a part of us, like an infection, it taints everything that we do so that even our best is unacceptable before God. This is not painting a very good picture of me at age 14 before I came to Christ. But I want to tell you this, it is so true. See, I grew up in the Christian church. I I had my mom read the Bible to me just about every day. I knew right from wrong. I wanted to do the good, but there was this compulsion, and this compulsion controlled me. And I constantly failed. I constantly felt guilty. I constantly felt as if I could not live up to what it meant to be a Christian. Because being a Christian, doesn't that mean that you do all these good things? You know, observing the law. Don't lie. I failed at that one like all the time. 
I can remember one particular time. I brought a box of eggs, unboiled by the way, to the end of my street, just five houses down. And on the other side of the street, I used the house opposite of me because I didn't like that neighbor as target practice. And I wanted to see if I could hit the windows. And so I took all 12 and I just hurled them. A friend was with me, joined me. So six eggs each, do the math. And we were, we, oh man, that was an bullseye dude way to go and we just hauled them and we saw the guy come out of the house and we just bolted down the road i mean come on he saw who we were and i just figured okay we escaped him like we're good well that night when my dad came home he knew and i remember he asked me this question mike why 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 did you do this and here was my i was very specific with my response I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I did this. I didn't did it because I hated the guy. I, I mean, I, we, we weren't like the best friends or anything. But I just wanted to do it. It was like, I was compelled. I don't know why. And that was, that was me as someone controlled in sin. And that's the way I lived my life until I was 14. And I remember that day, and it, it, it's like a picture in my mind. I'm sitting there with a gospel tract. It says, am I going to heaven? Find out inside. So my, my brother says, Mike, why don't you just read through this? And I'm thinking, oh, man, it's Friday, not even Sunday. I got to do this religious thing. Sure, Dan. And I remember my, my brother Dan had gone through this transformation in the last six months. I was a little curious, to be honest with you. So I humored him, and I started reading through it. And I opened it up, and there are 17 options. And I'm thinking, I'm going to ace this test. And I checked, yep, I keep the Ten Commandments. I do good to those. I, I'm, I'm, I go to church. I tithe. I put my dime in the offering plate every week, church, every week. And then it says, um, keep holy unction. And I thought, what is that? I, you know, I might as well just check that one off too. And I'm going down, I'm, I'm doing great, checking 16 off and 17 says other, and that was kind of like a freebie, you know, other, well, sure, whatever that might be. And I aced the test. And then my brother explained to me, Mike, do you not realize that being a Christian and, and coming into this relationship with Jesus Christ has nothing to do with trying to do good works? Yeah, I wanted to do good. That is what, that's what a Christian is, right? That's what it means to be a Christian. Well, if it is, then how many good works do you actually have to do, Mike? Like it, do you just have to do more good works than sins? And is that how this thing works, like the scales of justice? And as he walked me through it, I realized that just one sin, one sin, and I was certainly guilty of at least one, barred me from a relationship with Jesus Christ, barred me from access into heaven. And as I began to read, I thought, this is unfair. I mean, who can ever be good enough so that they never sin? This is impossible. And as I began to read, I then began to understand why Jesus had to come and die for my sins. 
because it's not about me. Even though I was compulsed to do good, I had to confess I did wrong all the time. I, in fact, could not do the right. And my best, Scripture says, was like filthy rags. See, that's why Jesus had to come. That's why he had to take care of my sin addiction. And he had to die for my sins. So it's not a matter of me doing enough good works to say, God, to be able to say, you know, Mike, excellent. You know what? I, as I'm kind of grading your life here, I, two thumbs up. I think you're going to make it. Because the sin had to go. It's not an issue of the good works. It's an issue of the sin. I was still a sin addict, and I need to be rescued. And so Paul is confessing the very same thing. He grew up in a different religious system that observed the law. And, and I tell you what, when they studied the law, they studied it in all of its minutiae. And there was just this compulsion in him. I've, I've got to do this. I've got to obey every single jot and tittle. And, and he realized that he couldn't, and he found himself in this conflict. And as we realize that, as we go on, number four, he was controlled by the flesh. Plain and simple. Sin in him dictated how he was going to live his life. The truth is, Church, who are you? You are not one, even though at times flesh takes the lead, even though you sin, Scripture makes it clear. Paul has been telling us, wait a second. Do you not realize that sin, your flesh, will not control you? any? Look at chapter 7, verse 5. He says here, Chapter 7, verse 5, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the flesh, that's what he just said here. When we're controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. In Romans 8, verses 4 and 9, it says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who are not living according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In verse 9, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. You see, the truth is, we are not those who are controlled by the flesh. We are The Spirit of God indwells each of you who believe in Jesus Christ, who have been rescued from your sins. When <laughs> excuse me, when Jesus, excuse me, when Joseph was wondering whether he should marry his wife Mary or not, she was pregnant with a child outside of wedlock, and he was ready to divorce her. And an angel appeared to him in a dream, and he said, hang on a second, Joseph. Hang on. I want you to marry her because she is not pregnant by some other man, but she's actually pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And the child that's within her, you're going to call him Jesus. That's his name, Jesus, because he will rescue his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came to rescue me. And at age 14, in all of my willful opposition to what my brother had to say to me. The Spirit of God finally broke through. And that's when I surrendered to him. And that's when he rescued me. 
And even though we may feel at times that the flesh gets the better of us, here is the truth. You have been given power by His Spirit in you to overcome. It doesn't feel that way at times. But you know what? Paul never says, you know what? Forget about the truth. Let's just go by what you feel today. You don't feel very strong. So, well, I guess you're just going to have to fail all day today because you don't feel strong. Well, Paul doesn't confess that. He says, you know what? Even when I felt the weakest, that's when God's strength was the most powerful. Why? Because that's when he realized, I can't do this, and I need God right now, and God's grace was enough. Church, God's grace is enough for you to be able to live a victorious life. And here's what I personally have found, that the more I surrender to him, Jesus Christ, the more I grow, the more I find myself victorious over sin. We're in a battle, and here is the amazing thing. Church, it is totally contradictory. It's what we call a paradox. But in this battle, like no other, the key to victory is in surrender. Zach was talking about this yesterday. Surrender. Not to sin, not to the devil, but to Jesus Christ. Because when we surrender to him, he pours out enough grace, always enough grace. So again, this is what Paul has been trying to show us. This is who you are in Christ. You're not controlled by the flesh, but you're controlled by the spirit. You are not under sin but you are in Christ or under Christ, if you will. You are not under law. And let me just give it the best college try that I can. No, you are under grace. And grace now empowers you to look more and more like Jesus. So he goes on here and he says in, what is it, in verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law, we're on point number five here. Here's the difficulty that we find here. The word delight is used only here in the New Testament. So it's not like we can just do a word study on this. But I think it's pretty clear. He, he delights in the law. And, and again, Romans 3 does not say that the unbeliever can't delight in the law. Actually, if you were to look in Romans 10.2 and Acts 22.3, Paul confesses that he was zealous for God. And in, in chapter 10, verse 2, he says, I would, I would be willing to lay my life down for my people who are zealous for God. And you see, Paul, who was zealous for God, who was so zealous for the law and delighted in the law, but could never keep it completely, he wanted to exterminate all the Christians. They were just part of some cult. They wanted to lift up this Jesus and actually worship him as God. What? And he said, absolutely not. Not on my watch. And so he actually persecuted followers of Christ to the point where many of them ended up being put to death. That was Paul. He was compelled to defend his Jewish belief, to follow the law, because he was a zealot. He loved the Bible. But let me word it this way. Paul had a love-hate relationship with the law of God. Because as he confessed earlier, when he studied the law and realized he couldn't keep it, that meant he was a lawbreaker, and he constantly saw himself falling short 
and feeling condemned. But he loved the law because he was supposed to. I mean, every good Jew, you're supposed to love the law when you're bar mitzvahed, which means son of the commandment. You're supposed to love the law. And so they would kiss it, and they would read it, and they would bless it. And he now, at age 13, was able to read from the Torah every Sabbath, every Saturday. And he learned to love the law. But on the other hand, he hated it because it condemned him because it found him out to be a sinner. And so even though it says he delighted in the law, he found this problem. He was a prisoner of his sin. This principle of sin that was in him. He, was, he felt a prisoner by this sin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. Keep your finger there in Romans 7. But in Galatians 3, 22, it says this. I had it there in this. Okay. Give me a moment. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Romans 6, Paul had been just teaching us in verses 17 and 18 but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching in which you were entrusted. You had been set free, not imprisoned, church, but set free from sin and had become slaves to righteousness. And so <laughs> we need to realize <clears throat> excuse me, that in God's holy ledger, his heavenly ledger, if you will, called truth, he declares who we are in Christ, and that is ones who are set free. You are not, Stephen, Jim, you are not prisoners of sin any longer. Leanne, you are not a prisoner of sin. Mike, Cole, you are no longer prisoners of sin. Sin used to hold you captive, but not any longer. Now you, those chains have been broken, and God's grace empowers you to do what is right, even though you may not do right all the time, but you have now the power and the ability. The ability is in you. I'm reflecting back to that time when Paul says, that ability was not in me. You now have the ability, the power, by God's grace, to do the good. You can. You are no longer a prisoner. You have been set free from sin. This is who you are in Christ. But if you are not in Christ, Paul's confession he's here is, I was a prisoner of the law of sin. And his conclusion is this. In verse 24, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. Can I ask you, have you ever felt that way before? Paul, as one under law and under sin, unable thereby to keep the law, constantly failing, constantly condemned by this, his conclusion was, I was a wretched man. Miserable. That's his conclusion. Let's 
take just a moment. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. Paul, in all of those quotes from the Old Testament, talking or describing those under sin, he comes to the same conclusion. And in verse 16, it says, verse 15 and 16, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways. That word misery is the same word, what a miserable man I am, except it's in the noun form. That's his conclusion. Misery is their end for those under sin. That was my end. That's what I realized. That's what Paul realized. And he said, what a miserable or what a wretched man I am. We were just looking at this, at that word up here when we were talking about, what was the name of the song we did, uh, uh, Light the Fire Again? Turn to Revelation 3.17. Revelation 3.17, and this is the conclusion that Jesus gives of those in Laodicea. They were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. They thought they were following Christ, but they weren't. Church, we need to realize that there is something that can be so deceptive. I mean, honestly, for me, until I was 14, I thought I was saved. I thought I was a Christian. But I really didn't understand the gospel. But I thought I was a Christian. After all, I went to church, and guess what, church? I kept holy unction. I really did. At least I thought I did. And I tithed, and okay, so I beat up my brother like every other day, he, my younger brother, not my older one. You've met Rob. I couldn't beat him up. That's the one they nicknamed the Hulk. Yeah, couldn't do that. But I did that with my younger brother like as frequently as I could just to make sure he understood you're the younger brother and I'm the older brother. Let's get that straight. And so I taught him that lesson regularly. And yeah, I did not do unto others as I would have them do unto me, uh, at least not my younger brother. And I didn't keep it. But I thought I was a Christian. As a matter of fact, I prayed the prayer when I was eight years old. I asked Jesus into my heart at a vacation Bible school. Jesus, please come into my heart, whatever that means. When I was 10 years old, I thought, you know what? I might as well do this again. And so I, I, I asked Jesus into my heart. When I was 12 years old, I was at a Jesus people. Remember back in the 70s? Did anybody here ever live in the 70s? Gene, Cole, come on, Meredith, okay. A couple of us lived back in the 70s, the Jesus people movement. In 1974-something, 74, um, my sister and my uh, brother-in-law were some of the leaders in the Jesus People movement, and in this very traditional Baptist church in their basement, about 300 people from all different churches around would gather there. Miracles would happen. They would proclaim Christ. And I said, you know, I want to be a Christian too. This is awesome. And I went to the counseling room, and they said, well, Mike, just pray this prayer. So I prayed that prayer, and I walked out. I'm saved now. But I went right back to my old ways, and there was absolutely no difference. And I, there was this deception. I, I'm a Christian now because I prayed the prayer. And that's the constant. I'm a Christian because I prayed the prayer. Maybe some of you, you're a Christian because you walk the aisle. One day a pastor said, how many of you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Just like that when I was eight years old in vacation Bible school. Me, I want to accept Jesus. I want to have Jesus in my heart. But I really did not understand what it meant to believe in Jesus. Because I had to come to this conclusion that Jesus is sharing with the Laodiceans 
In verse 17, it says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. God, got it, I'm good. You know, there's other people in need that need to be saved and all of that good stuff. Focus on them, I'm good. Really? Hmm. But you, you do not realize that you are wretched. Same word. Pitiful, poor, blind, naked. He pulls no punches here, church. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. They were wretched. They were miserable. That is always the conclusion of those who are lost in sin outside of Christ. And so the conclusion then that he says is, who will rescue me from this body of death? Because that's what sin does in us. It works death. And for those who are lost in this sin and under its control and power and influence, who's going to rescue me? Well, good news, the answer is God is going to do it through Jesus Christ. After all, what, is, what does Colossians 1.13 say? It says that God transferred you from the kingdom. He, he delivered you. He rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I want to ask you right now. Uh, you may be visiting this morning. You may have been here for quite some time. But as we are going through this, you recognize something. And there's something inside of you that says, wow, man, that's me. That's me. I remember I prayed the sinner's prayer one day. But I have never surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says that if that never happens, then that means he's never rescued you from this body of death. That is what Jesus is here for you. And you're wrestling with this conflict inside of yourself, that inside of you that, that Paul brings to a conclusion. Paul does not bring us to the conclusion in verse 25 that he is a saved man. He doesn't do that. What does, what does he tell us? So then, or therefore, Consequently, here's my conclusion of the matter. Even though he introduces the answer in Jesus Christ, here's his conclusion. He says this, chapter 7, verse 25, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, the flesh, a slave to the law of sin. Let me translate that just a little bit more literally, okay? That in his mind, he serves as a slave to the law of God. But in his flesh, he serves as a slave to the law of sin. Now, some have contrasted this and said that the first part of this is good, slave to God's law. 
It's the second part that's bad. But can I encourage you in this? Paul is telling us both of these are bad. You see, this is his conflict. He is a slave to the law of God. Turn to your left in Romans 7. And in verse 4, he says, So my brothers, you also died to the law. And in verse 6, But now, as a believer, one who's been set free, from your sin. As a believer in Jesus Christ, sin's forgiven. He says, but now by dying to what once bound us, which was the law of God, we have been released from the law. The law bound us. We were a slave to it. Paul, certainly, as a Jew, his testimony I was a slave to it. But then he goes on and he says, so that we serve. This is the same word that we just read in verse 25, to serve as a slave. But what does he say here? He says, in essence, so that we serve as a slave in the new way of the spirit, but we do not serve as a slave in the old way of the written code, the law. See, he was a slave to the law of God in his mind, desiring to delight in it and do it. But you see, in his flesh, he was a slave to sin. And that just was not going to work. Everywhere he turned, seeking to obey it and do it right and do it perfectly, he felt that like, like that little hamster on the treadmill. Couldn't do it. And then finally, he comes to chapter 8. It's like a page in his life is turned. And he uses the very same word, that we see there in verse 25 of chapter 7, so then, except he says, so then, or therefore, now. Okay, church, now. See, this is where I, I was in conflict and in bondage, and there was only one answer, and that it was in Jesus Christ, but the truth is, I was a slave to the law of God, and I was under law, and I was a slave to sin, and therefore under sin, but now, For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You see, this is why Jesus died for you. He came to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to rescue you. So here's my question for you this morning. If you're gathered here, and I realize that I am speaking to two groups here. There are those, and you truly have given your hearts and surrendered to Christ. And my challenge to you is latch on to these truths, eight of them. This is where you used to be, but now who are you in Christ? Now, no condemnation, eight principles. This is who you are. But I'm also speaking to another group. And that other group You might even think that you're saved. You might even think, I prayed that sinner's prayer one day. I remember. So here's my question. Have you been set free? Has Christ changed your life? Or does your life today look absolutely no different than it was that day you prayed that prayer? Don't get me wrong. The Bible does say that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But I know for me, the question I had to ask is, what was my heart like? 
Because in my heart, that was not surrendered to Christ. It truly was not. And so there was no change when I prayed that sinner's prayer. But when I was 14, I said to myself, what a wretched man I am. I desperately need to be rescued. And that's when I called on the name of the Lord. Can you stand with me? If we could turn the lights out, at least for up front here where I am, here is my question. We're about to have communion, and communion is something very special. Communion is this opportunity for us to reflect upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, says that if you are a Christian, if you have called on the name of the Lord, Jesus, rescue me from me and settle this conflict in my life. Rescue me from my sin. Cleanse me. Wash me clean. If that's never happened to you, he says, please don't partake of the bread and the wine. Don't, don't do that. But if you have, you see, we take the bread because that represents Christ's body. And it reminds us that it was broken on the, on the cross for me. That Jesus surrendered and sacrificed himself for me. He was that offering to God the Father. He was the one who stood there in my place and took God's punishment for my sins on him. His body was broken for me. And his blood, the cup, his blood was poured out for me to wash away all of my sins so that I don't have to wrestle with all of this guilt, all of this condemnation, the sense of unworthiness before God because now I'm in Christ. He is worthy.